Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and we respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Okay, according to our technical staff and the magic of electrons, we should be right on uh, up and running on Facebook Live. Welcome to the USC Center for the Political Futures Election R&D Dialogues. I'm Mike Murphy and co-director of the center, and with me is my friend and old professional adversary, our center director, Bob Strum. Bob, welcome. Thank you, and we're doing this, of course, in partnership with the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival. Absolutely. Uh, Check it out online. It's pretty cool. We're going to be doing more stuff with them. So this is one of our chat-a-thons about what's going on in politics. And obviously, the big topic is the Republican National Convention. So, Bob, you're a lifelong fan of the Republican Party, a a uh, (laughs) many-time convention reviewer. I remember you waving that Reagan or nothing sign back in 76. Uh, I say facetiously, Bob, of course, to those in our audience who don't know, has been a giant in the Democratic Party for years and a a very famous Democratic speechwriter and, of course, political consultant. So I'm going to start by throwing it to you. What did you think? What was your sense? And then I'll I'll go into my spiel. Well, I agree with what you said on MSNBC last night, that uh, Donald Trump won the Fidel Castro Award for the longest oratory. Uh, It was the worst written and worst delivered acceptance speech in modern history. Now, I'll say that with a caveat, that one section of the speech that, and strategy is often necessity. You, you know, you, you got nothing left, you go with what maybe you have. And the one section of the speech that might move the dial is the hypercharged version of the law and order campaign, given what's going on in cities around America. Uh, we won't know that uh, for a few days. Uh, our USC Dornsife Daybreak poll today doesn't reflect the convention yet, has a 12-point lead for Joe Biden, and has Trump down, basically, uh, falling in all of his core groups. But on Tuesday, we'll have a poll that will come out that will reflect whether or not that law and order appeal is effective and whether or not Trump got a bump. And if you want to keep up with our poll, which is an interesting poll because it's a panel, which means we have a much bigger sample than most polls, and we go back to the same people over and over again to see if they're moving or changing their minds. So you can just follow us on our our Twitter account, USC POL Future, USC Politics Future, POL, uh, or, of course, on our website. Uh, Yeah, so my take on the convention, you know, I'm a never-Trumper and a conservative, so I see this populist thuggery taking over the party, and it disturbs me. I don't like seeing the White House used as a prop. My friend Jack Pitney, the great political scientist over at Claremont who worked uh, for the Bush campaigns of President H.W. Bush in the 80s, had a great tweet, which is back in my day, we couldn't even use the White House fax machine for (laughs) campaign stuff because it was government property. And that's the culture we used to have. And when you lose culture like that, you lose a lot. Because I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. The thing is rules. And that's all going out the side. But as far as the hard politics are concerned, Trump did a good job of exciting the voters he already has. But the problem is Trump is behind. And he didn't do very much at all to get the voters he needs. Now, technically, it was a 
you know, a stem winder. The Castro Society is probably getting the trophy ready to give it to him. It was an undisciplined speech. He was wheeling around everywhere. You could tell even he was bored at the end, looking forward to the fireworks <laughs> of seeing his name in 30-foot letters or whatever. You know, it's all part of the indulgence. But there were two things, I think, think of note in the speech. One is Trump created an alternate reality for his people so they can go home and have dinner table arguments about, well, he did this, he did that, he did that. It's the greatest record in American history. Now, literally, the Washington Post fact checker, I believe, after giving it, you can find it on Twitter, a great speed-talking rebuttal of, of just the untruths everywhere. I think he was hospitalized for exhaustion because there was so, so much. Look, Bob and I are a couple of political you know, hacks, we say with pride. And we've thrown a few curveballs. I think we both know how to put a half Nelson in, on, the, on the facts and come up with something that we used to say is pejoratively true, mostly true, campaign debate true. We both made a lot of political spots. But this is a whole true. new level. Technically true, Mike. Technically true. Technically, Technically true. true. <laughs> we, we would give you two-thirds of the fact, and you can look up the rest for yourself, which may be not as good as the two-thirds we'd use. That's normal politics. I can live with that. But this is a whole new world. But from Trump's point of view, they filled in the blanks for their people. My point is, they don't have enough people, so that doesn't help them win. However, they lit one fuse. They did it with every speech, which is, is Biden on the side of law and order, or is he on the side of radical, violent-prone demonstrators? And the the Biden campaign, I believe, takes that seriously, because they've been pretty quick to get Biden out to say, don't defund the police, looting is bad, et cetera, et cetera. My advice to him would be turn up the tone a little bit because I think in his heart, Joe Biden is such a lunch pail old school Democrat that he's got a little officer Biden in the back of his head, the good neighborhood beat cop who says, you know, that this is on one hand, we have to have police reform and I'm the guy to do it because I know who the jerks are and how to fight them. But on the other hand, no bricks. We don't do that. And to take a tougher tone. And I worry the woke department of the campaign is trying to water that down a little because they think they might have some votes on the, the hard left that has some sympathy to violence. That, to me, is a huge mistake. If Biden doesn't get the tone right on this, the debate is going to change from a referendum on Trump to scared suburbanites. I was in a couple of focus groups online yesterday where I heard a lot about this rioting. So I, I applaud Biden for taking action though Trump lit a fuse here for the campaign he wants, which is a a racial resentment war between white and black. And Trump used that energy to get elected last time, particularly in the industrial Midwest, the battleground for a lot of the campaign. So I hope Joe's inner law and order old school voice prevails here in tone even more than it has. I'll give him credit for starting it uh, because there's some danger here. Trump's making a move. other movie made, and we can talk about this later, is Trump is going to promise a vaccine to get the focus back to the economy, where at least as of today, he has an advantage on Biden among those swing voters, something we'll be watching in the poll and something I think the Biden campaign ought to really be focused on eliminating that edge for Trump, because the, the vaccine thing could work simply because people are so hungry for good news, uh, and Trump's a con man, so put those two things together, and there could be some energy there, too. Yeah, I, I, I tend to think people won't trust Trump if he gets up in October and says we have a vaccine. Uh, they're going to see it as a purely political move. I think the same thing, for example, if Attorney General Barr decided he was going to indict Hunter Biden, I think people would see it as, as purely political. The next big moments, aside from advertising, which is more important in this campaign than other presidential campaigns because we're all locked in, uh, 
aside from that advertising, the debates will be very critical because this whole law and order argument will be adjudicated in the debates. Uh, I know Biden. I know him pretty well. I think he will do exactly what Mike is talking about. I think that's his instinct. I think that's where he wants to go. And at the end of the day, he makes those decisions. Uh, I've watched him when he gets advice, and sometimes he takes it and sometimes he doesn't. Uh, and I have to give him credit because he started out with a theory of the case at the beginning of this race when a lot of people thought he couldn't win the nomination. And he really has stuck to that theme from day one until now. Uh, the, the disorder in Kenosha uh, is a problem. Uh, it's a problem for the country. Uh, Kellyanne Conway actually uh, went on uh, an interview show and uh, sounded like she wanted more disorder. She'd like a lot more disorder uh, and because that reminds people of the president's appeal that he can put this down. Now, the other, the other side of this, I think, is when you have NBA teams not playing, when you have uh, baseball teams not playing, it adds to the sense that somehow or other there's something fundamentally wrong in Trump's America. And at least as of right now, Biden has a lead in uh, all the polling that asks about it on who can best handle racial strife. But he's got to keep that lead. Yeah. He can't see that lead go away. Yeah, I agree. I think the best thing Biden has is he can say, look, if I'm president, the cities won't be on fire. There will be the smartest people in medicine working on the pandemic. And I know how to make the system work in Washington to actually deliver for you. And by the way, you won't be pouring out of work anymore. With Trump, you get more chaos. Trump is the arsonist fireman. He sets the bonfire, sneaks around the corner, puts on a phony fireman uniform, runs back, says, for $100, I'll put out the fire. You know, Biden's got to call him all that and say, I'm the security guy. You worried, you worried about the cities burning down. I'm the guy to, to make this problem go away. But I want to see more passion. I want Joe to say, look, I'm going to take a can opener to what's wrong with police culture. But I'm also going to make it real clear right now, you throw a brick, you're going to be wearing handcuffs because that's not how we do it in America. We don't burn down small businesses in our neighborhood. We protest. And I, I think he should applaud the sports protest. I'm sure he has because that's the kind of soft power protest that will move a lot more people then, you know, kids coming in from the suburbs, putting on their black ninja outfits, trying to meet girls by throwing bricks and being hipster revolutionaries. Violence doesn't sell in American politics, particularly in the suburbs, which is where this election will be won or lost. So anyway, and finally, I agree on the debate. Uh, Biden did a great job in his speech, knocking down all the Joe Biden can't, you know, he's lost his mind. He can't do anything stuff. But that also raised his debate expectations a little. So he's got to continue delivering. Now, question for you, Bob, if you were running the Biden campaign, A, would you send him to Milwaukee soon uh, to make kind of a presidential move there? Because we know Trump's incapable of it. He's going to a rally in New Hampshire tonight. And two, if not there, how would you put him on the road and step things up a bit uh, for the Biden campaign now that we've had the conventions? Uh, I think if I was uh, running the Biden campaign, I'd listen to the health people. I'd listen to the experts. I wouldn't go anywhere that they told me not to go. I certainly wouldn't do what was done at the White House last night, which is jam all those people in, don't even check them, even at a temperature check, uh, don't require them to wear masks, no social distancing. Uh, you and I were talking with a reporter earlier today who said the reporters for the first time in the Trump White House were thrilled that they're stuck way off <laughs> in an area by yeah. themselves because... 
none of them wanted to be anywhere near that crowd. Right. Uh, the other thing I thought was striking about the convention, and I, I've thought a lot about it, was all of the effort to court black voters, uh, including claiming that uh, Trump has done more for African-Americans than Lincoln did. Uh, but they had a lot of, of, of African-American speakers, uh, and I think that's not designed to get them African-American votes. I think it's designed, once again, to go to the critical battleground in this election, which is the suburbs. They want to make it look like he's more tolerant, that the Trump Republican Party is more tolerant, despite the kind of race-laced appeals that they make on all sorts of issues. The one thing I don't understand, by the way, is why they keep talking about immigration in the language of 2016. Their base is mostly going to stay with them anyway. Yeah. Uh, and the people who they're losing from their base, and they're losing a little bit in our poll, uh, the, the, the immigration's not an issue that, 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 that's going to bring them back. Law and order might, but immigration's not. And in our data right now, 18% of the Latinos who voted for Trump in 2016 are now voting for Biden. So I don't know why they keep pounding away at this immigration issue. So my theory on that is the Trump campaign is always a maelstrom between the kind of thinking machinery bureaucrats who know how to run the basic generic Republican presidential campaign and Trump himself. They, you know, they got rid of Brad Parscale, the Ferrari collecting campaign manager. Now they've got an old Christie political goon named uh, Bill Steppe in there who understands the basics of running a basic Republican campaign. He's no Metternich, but, but he understands kind of Republican 101. He's not even a Murphy, let alone a Metternich. <laughs> well, but I'll tell you what he, why he's an improvement. I'll give him credit. He knows the Republican machine has been taught to run one kind of campaign, so it can happen on autopilot. He knows he can't control Trump. So Trump is running up and down the hall saying, I want to talk about my great accomplishments. I don't want, I want to talk about the blacks. I've been more for the blacks than anybody. I want to, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I, uh, I want to talk about the wall. I want to talk about immigration. That got me here. And nobody's going to stop Trump, the, you know, the 300-pound toddler from any of that. He's the president, and he's his own guy. What Stepien's figured out is, all right, we're, we're do some of that, but when in doubt, a good offense beats a defense. So sure, we've got some very charismatic African-American Republicans, and some like Tim Scott are tremendously impressive. Turn them loose. Can't hurt. And it does put a veneer to maybe protect Trump from some of these accusations. I thought it was notable, by the way, that Tim Scott, who's a potential, I think, 24 candidate in the primary, if Trump is, uh, uh, well, if or without, he'll be, he'll be turned out. Ended his speech not with, you know, God bless America, God bless Donald Trump, vote for Donald Trump. It was, you know, vote your straight Republican ticket. <laughs> There's no Trump in the last 200 words. So the last thing I'd say about the mix between the technocrats like Stepien and the president running amok is you can see all these little cues of the normal stuff. You heard some of the regular Republican rhetoric in the convention, which can be effective. I thought Pence did a better, if somewhat dishonest, job of pounding on Biden than Trump did because it was just by the book, bang, 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 bang. And you kept seeing people from Minnesota. This was a little tell for us political consultants. Minnesota is an 80% Caucasian state. Republicans often in presidential elections almost win it, because we do most of our business with white voters. We, we used to do more with non-white voters. Under Trump, the trend, of course, is mostly reversed. So I kept seeing guys who had a hardware store or something from Minnesota. Last time, 
Trump lost Minnesota by about 44, 40,000 votes. Uh, so it was fairly tight. It was like a point and a quarter, point and a half. He almost made it. And I think they're trying to offset their problems in other places like Arizona by making a big reach for Minnesota. Now, that's way too advanced for Trump to understand. But you can see the competent middle-level managers of the Republican Party trying to do their best semi-sane campaign. And you saw some of that messaging in this. The other thing I'll give them some credit for, I thought optically it would be a mess because they didn't have like great Hollywood people doing it. But they made a shrewd decision, which is let's bury one good location and flags and do everything from there. So we don't have to take the risk of complicated multi-location things and then do two other big set pieces. Fort McHenry, which I thought looked great for Pence. The, the audience shots one is great because they were small. Why are they there? COVID looks like an antique mall opening or something. But when there was a single on Pence, I thought the optics were great. And I got to give him credit for that. And the White House thing, well, way over the top, dictator, crazy, not what happens in American history, offensive on so many levels. From a pure TV point of view, that was strong imaging that he hijacked there. So I, I will give a nod to the RNC people, even though they, they ought to square with their gods and understand how they feel about being part of this. Uh, uh, some kudos for putting on a visually pretty solid convention and better than I expected, and in some ways visually superior to the Democratic convention. Yeah, and as you noted earlier, uh, a lot of the stuff they did, the Mellon Auditorium, the White House, um, Fort McHenry, using those places was illegal, a violation of the Hatch Act. Uh, but the White House Chief of Staff said no one outside the Beltway uh, cares about uh, the Hatch Act. Uh, and sadly, he's right. You know, yeah. it's a sad well, thing. But he's... Well, because Trump has normalized uh, uh, destroying the guardrails, disobeying laws, uh, he's normalized all that. So the story, you know, take that story about bounties on American troops paid for by Russia to the Taliban. In a normal administration, that story would run and run and run and run. Right. It's, now it's, every day. it's now on page A17 because, uh, you know, the guy on uh, CNN last night, I think, identified 21 falsehoods in Trump's speech in three minutes. And you're yeah. right. He was speed talking to get them all in. I think he needed uh, oxygen at the end of that. I also was fascinated uh, by uh, the fact that Mitch McConnell uh, basically didn't talk much about Trump. He said it at the end, but he was, he was pitching to save Senate seats. That's what he was trying to do. Uh, and uh, You mean he wasn't there to fire up the crowd and do a frenzy? <laughs> he, would, he, he didn't show up. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, the, no, it was taped. Yeah, it was taped. It was like uh, the accounting report, too. You know, furthermore... <laughs> Depreciation <laughs> tables across sectors 17 and 18 show signs of improvement. Well, he's he's not a charismatic orator, if, to put it mildly. Yeah. Yeah. But he you know was, he's kind of a funny guy in a small room. By the way, yeah. I, I'm yeah. kind of fond of Mitch, so I'm so disappointed in him on this Trump stuff. But it, it's interesting because his behind closed door personality is a little more sparkling than what you see behind the podium. Yeah, yeah, he was. You know, I think he was intentionally even more low-key than he usually is. Yeah. He actually didn't didn't want to be a big part of this, didn't want a primetime slot. Yeah, well, he knows he's losing his Senate caucus if the election were held tomorrow. So, And by the way, this is something, you know, Democrats, Republican partisans try to see everything monodimensionally. In real life, McConnell hates Trump. But they're all caught in these roles. I think Mitch made the mistake of becoming subordinate to him. I know why he did it. But, yeah, it's always more complicated. And you can tell he was just not particularly happy being there and not particularly happy being a very shrewd political guy, knowing what kind of trouble the majority's in right now. 
And you didn't see President Bush at the convention, mm -hmm. uh, very much on the Democrats. Romney doesn't exist, McCain. You yeah. didn't see Romney at the convention. Uh, I think it was, it was the kind of convention that was almost idolatrous. When you saw those big Trump fireworks and 30 feet, Mike, I'll bet they were 100 feet high, spelling out his name. No, at least, yeah. I'm, look, whenever you've got a leader on, on, in the presidential palace preaching to an almost gunpoint crowd of people who are putting their health at risk to be there like you have a choice, amigo, uh, and then his name in large fiery sticks, I mean, <laughs> you, know, you know, if you look at the pantheon of that, you start immediately going to certain Germanic nations that have a flair for, you know, panzers and marching. I mean, it's unbelievable. And it's been like the lobster in the pot. It gets a little worse each week, and you're, you kind of become a nerd to it. Now, here's one thing I want, I want you to react to as a good dem. I, we Republicans, every party has their, their ways for good or bad. They have their weaknesses and their strengths. And we, the, the, in the evil Republican underground headquarters where we have, you know, the Nixon statutes and everything under the RNC, one of the surefire laugh lines is when, when you cut a corner like that, like the Hatch Act, the Democrats are immediately going to want to want to litigate the infraction. And, you know, I think this could lead to a very stiff, editorial from the New York Times, and they kind of fall into that trap. Are you worried that the Democrats will react to Trump's many violations of ethical stuff and like the Hatch Act, which are horrible? They're on the right side of the argument, the Dems are, but lose focus on the big picture, which is what the election means to you, voter in Mount Clemens, Michigan, who doesn't really care about you know, laws about hatches and Washington submarines or whatever. You know, one of the things that I, and I'm not worried about it, and I'm not worried about it because one of the things that's most interesting about Biden is not just that he took the train home every night, and that even when he was vice president, his wife was still teaching in a community college, he was still taking the train, although not every night, uh, back to his home in Wilmington, is he talks a lot and has continued to talk a lot with ordinary people. And he understands, I think, what they care about. He will focus on COVID, he will focus on the economy, and he will focus on racial healing. And he will not, in my view, sign on with these folks who are disregarding John Lewis's advice as they burn uh, these cities or throw a brick. And that advice was, don't turn to violence, make sure you vote. Uh, and and I, I, I think Biden is very down to earth, very much in touch, so in the skyscraper that is the Democratic headquarters, where we can look out on all the goodness of America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. Not the I, secret room I, under the union headquarters. But anyway, right, keep going. Right. <laughs> uh, in, in, I think in, in, in that place, uh, Joe Biden is going to be the person guiding this campaign. His instincts, like Trump's instincts, guide his campaign. But Biden's instincts, they'll be informed by polling, Biden's instincts are to do exactly what you think Democrats should be doing. Good, good, because if he's willing to put the, the one of the big problems of American politics now, I think, is everybody treats base voters like swing voters and they don't. They're for you. You can put them in a little bit of pain to get everybody else. The Republicans have forgot that. And that's why we're losing everywhere that and Trump's, you know, many crimes and shortcomings. But the Dems need to learn that lesson, too. I I don't worry about Joe Biden not being woke enough. I worry about Joe Biden letting Republican culture wars corner him because of the leading edges of his politics are a little too friendly on the brick issue. Now, 
first a plug. We're going to answer questions, but the to answer questions, we need questions. So if you go down to the chat function on this fancy uh, uh, Zoom software we have, you can type in your question, and I'll, I'll go through them, and I'll ask Bob the tricky ones. So let's have some real fastballs for him. Uh, I want softballs. Uh, <laughs> second, I have a question for you. Let's say our fabled USC Dornsife uh, poll comes out next Tuesday, where we've had a couple of days of asking our large national panel, because it's a panel poll. We track the same people and how they are most. It's a large universe, and we poll within it, and we see how they change. Next Tuesday, we got numbers, and all of a sudden, it's not these halcyon happy days of Biden 10 or 12 points ahead, but it's a six-point race. And other some brass moves will come out with Trump's ahead one or tied. There will be other polls showing four, five, six, seven. You know, it, I think it'll be just on volume. It'll tighten because it's been unrealistically wide. What what's life like in the Biden campaign? What do they do? Because I often say the Republicans under Trump have become the stupid party, but the Democrats tend to be the neurotic party. How would you manage through that as a veteran of presidential campaigns when reality of a tighter race with Biden still, I believe, in a superior position starts to bubble through uh, in the middle of September? You got to stick to your message. You have to guard your flank on uh, the riots and, and, and the disorder while also talking about reforming the police. Uh, you have to make it clear you don't want to defund the police. That's the defensive move. And offensively, you have to really go after Trump on COVID, and you have to really have a strong message about the economy. And I don't think you should panic. Uh, I, you know, remember in, in uh, 2012 when Barack Obama belly flopped into an empty pool in the first debate with Romney? I and all these Democrats. Well. All these Democrats totally panicked. Uh, and Biden went into his debate with Paul Ryan, and he helped restore Democratic morale. And, and, and the uh, Obama campaign never got off its game. They just said, we have to do better in the second debate. They were very disciplined about it. They stuck to message. That's what I think will happen here. And what you could say about the Biden campaign during the primaries was, they were constantly falling down the stairs and getting beat up, but they never broke or panicked. They, they, they really took their beating. So they have, at least the candidate does, and hopefully the new expanded staff does have some ability to understand that the immediate panic is not always the immediate reality in, in one of these campaigns. The other thing is Joe Biden has some really smart people around him. Mm -hmm. Mike Donilon, my former partner, uh, who is... Uh, so quiet that he wouldn't tell you if your pants were on fire, uh, but is so smart that uh, I think he helped craft that uh, the, the, the vice president's acceptance speech, and he oversees the advertising in the campaign, and he's a strategist, but you take him, you take Jen O'Malley Dillon, you take uh, Ron Klain, you take the people who are around Biden, they're smart, they're seasoned, and they've seen all this before. Yeah, Ron's very uh, ring-wise, uh, and they all are. In some of these focus groups, here's something I kept hearing a lot from people who aren't for Biden and are maybe softly leaning Trump but not there yet. People Biden ought to get to put the race away. And this was in Florida, which I think is in many ways the most important state because if you win Florida, you only need one more. So well, this was a Republican Voters Against Trump, you know, the organization I work with, rvet.org, a uh, couple of focus groups. And we kept hitting them with the COVID stuff. And what they would fire back was, is, look, COVID's bad, but it could have happened to any president. 
Trump is a victim of it, just like everybody else. So it's unfair to blame all this on him. There was that mean lady at the Democratic convention saying he killed his dad. It could have happened to Obama. It could have happened to anybody. Uh, some of these statistics are overcited. My uncle works at a hospital, and they're telling him to cook the statistics to get more money from the government. You know, I was surprised at the pushback of undecided voters, white voters, on some of this, particularly that it could have happened to anybody. And Trump hasn't done a great job, but it's unfair to totally hang it on him. Now, most of the Democratic messaging, I think, at least right now, is hanging it on him. Do you think that's a problem? What, does that ring an alarm bell with you, or what do you, what do you think about it? No, that? I think the problem was your screen for, for your focus group, because <laughs> if there are people saying, my uncle works at a hospital and they told him to make up the statistics, I don't think that's an undecided voter. I think that's somebody who's really decided that they're going to yeah, be. Yeah, no, I, I think that, but let me put it this way. Nobody would argue back in the focus group. I was surprised the Biden people, and there were in the group, didn't push back on the COVID thing hard at all. Now, you know, two groups, certain dynamic, but. And if you look, if you look at all the polling data, uh, the president's getting blamed by the country uh, for COVID in a, very, by a very substantial margin. And by a very substantial margin, people think that Biden would do a better job. Uh, so I think they're going to keep telling that story. They'll tell it throughout the campaign. And what they did that was smart at the Democratic convention, and, and I said this last week, was they talked about COVID, not just as COVID, but in terms of the economy. Uh, well, I think that's very important because it, I think the COVID thing has limits. Yeah, it's, it's, where, it's where we're going to go in this campaign. I mean, I think it's going to be an ugly campaign. Uh, I think this law and order stuff is going gonna, is gonna to get uh, really sulfurous. Uh, but I also think that uh, Biden has a powerful message positively about the soul of the country. And on the other side, in contrast with, with Trump, on COVID, on racial strife, and ultimately, I think he'll win on the economy as well. I wrote about this in the Washington Post one Sunday ago, or Sunday last Sunday, that I, I looked at all the black swans that worry me about the race flipping in Trump's direction. One was Biden being defined. The other was that there'd be a mania, and I talked about this a little beginning, but I want to hear your thoughts on what Biden ought to do. If a lot of good news about early trial results start coming back, because we're in the middle of these vaccine trials, and premature info, unverified, will leak out. And if it's good, it is good. You can see the psychology now. The stock market thinks it's temporary. That's why it hasn't collapsed. Um, and people start getting kind of a COVID mania. And then it's all about the economy. Does that worry you? And what should what should Biden do to preempt it? Well, first, I think the stock market is actually looking a year or two ahead. That's their time horizon. Uh, and I think that's why it's been going up. Uh, secondly, Biden can't look political if you start seeing genuine good results. And if you have people like Anthony Fauci saying we're getting good results, he has to welcome them can't look like you want people to die so that you can get elected president of the United States. Right, right. right. Uh, so I don't think it gets Trump off the hook. I think people will have a sense of relief. But too many folks have died. Uh, America has 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's cases. Too much economic damage has been done. And yes, I think people would feel a sense of relief. But Mike, I have this theory uh, that the country a majority of the country has already basically decided, barring some unforeseen event, some black swan floating down the river, uh, has already decided that they, that they don't want Donald Trump anymore. In fact, I thought the chance of four more years at the Republican convention, that's usually a triumphal chant 
for an incumbent president who's in a good position. I think, I think when, when the country heard them uh, last night, and the ratings, I guess, were pretty uh, substantially below the ratings for the Democratic convention, but I think when, when people in the middle heard that last night, they kind of said, four more years? In your head, you suddenly get a picture of what might happen in those four years. Uh, and, and I don't think it's an asset. If anybody in the middle watched it, it was a bit of a grind. I'm paid to watch this stuff, and I, I you know, I struggled. I don't know. I, that has been my theory, because you look at all the special elections in the midterm since Trump, the Republican Party's gotten clobbered every time. Country wants to fire him. But black swans, you know, you try to anticipate what could go wrong. And I've been watching with great intent what FDA's been up to in their communications shop, where the Trump people put in a total hack to be the mouthpiece and control the message out of the FDA to get ready, I think, to overdo a promise of a vaccine. Everything's fine. It's about the economy. Vote for Trump. And she lasted nine days. The professional staff revolted and she, she got fired today. But I just, I, 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 I know what they're up to and it, it does concern me. Well, look, question time. First, a commercial. Uh, I hope you guys are enjoying this and all the virtual programming we do at the USC Center for the Political Future. You can help us and support our center by joining our center leadership circles. Your donations found scholarships, fund scholarships. We actually sent a bunch of kids to work on different campaigns in the Iowa caucus to get real political experience. It was a life-changing event for them. So we do programs like that, internships, scholarships, speakers, so much stuff we do. Uh, we really rely on your support. So if you go to our website and look into the center leadership circle, we'd love your support. And you get special stuff like an advanced look at our poll. Uh, Bob and I do briefing calls. There's all kinds of stuff. We might even get into coffee mugs with our logo on it. Uh, <laughs> so check it out and be part of this because it makes you a real political insider in the campaign and you can uh, learn a lot and support our work, which uh, helps a lot of people and our community here across the country and in our base of Southern California. Now, question one uh, from Stuart. Do you think the main persuasive point to the swing voters was law and order? But I think he's talking about the convention. But I took away it was Trump is a good guy and the fake news view that he is evil is just that fake news. Do you dismiss this message? I don't think that comes across in the way that the humanizing messages about Biden came across, partly because Biden was using really vivid examples and they they struck one as authentic, whether it was the train conductor, the little boy who stuttered, uh, a young man who stuttered, who gave that, that moving speech. I think putting people up there to say Trump is a good guy doesn't work when day after day after day he refutes that notion by the way he conducts himself. A hard sell. I thought some of it was fairly effective. Uh, Herschel Walker I thought was the best of all of it because I, I believe he believes what he said. But like when Trump's kids were talking, it was all MAGA boilerplate and nothing about him you know, the time he was at the baseball game instead of buying the parking lot and the fire sale. Um, you know, so it's just a very hard sell because it doesn't amplify much of the truth. It's the easiest sell in the world with Biden. Uh, so I also think Trump wants to hear that stuff because he's sensitive to the criticism that he is not a person of empathy. But I, I kind of agree with Bob, the wider picture will prevail. Here's a question from Roz. What do you think the October surprise will be? Uh, I think there are several candidates. One, a vaccine. Uh, two, the possibility, and I've alluded to this before, that Attorney General Barr doing Trump's political work will indict Hunter Biden on trumped-up charges. 
Uh, I don't think that will work, as I said. I think people will see it as political. Uh, You know, ending the war in Afghanistan, you know, coming to some agreement with the Taliban. I don't, that's not top of mind for people. That's not what folks are thinking about. Uh, But it could happen. And maybe Trump would try to run on that. I don't think it would work. Mike, what do you think? Oh, I absolutely will predict the key part of the October surprise, which is it'll be a surprise. You know, (laughs) it's something we're probably not thinking about. I agree with the list Bob had. I would add that the Southern District of New York is making a lot of loud and scary, if I were Trump, snarling noises about slapping a criminal tax uh, avoidance case on him. And it's just a race the clock deal. Uh, So that could pop up. Um, Biden could have a really bad gaffe. He could have a Joe moment. He could have a bad debate. He could have a bad debate. Trump, you know, just a bad day. Trump could have a bad everything. Uh, so there, there are a lot of kind of loose ends here. And then, of course, foreign crises. You know, there's all, more hot spots now because Trump's been destabilizing them before. And remember, we now have various dictatorships, be it Russia or the Chinese uh, or the North Koreans, who have an interest in fooling with our elections. And another norm bust under Trump is somehow we're not as offended by that as we ought to be. I came up in the era of uh, Ronald Reagan and Jim Baker and the Republican Hawks. They'd be squeezing Putin till he was standing on the street corner selling pencils because they would have seized all his bank accounts if he tried anything like that. So, you know, but maybe something else will happen that'll trigger it. All, all I know is it, it, this is going to be a bumpy ride. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's going to have surprises and there will be bad days for both sides. Now, here's a question from Judah. Judith Harris wants to know, does anyone know what the cost has been to taxpayers of Trump's campaign using the White House and other public venues for the Republican convention? Good question. No, millions of dollars, obviously. I mean, when I saw those Marine guards opening the door for Trump at the naturalization ceremony that they put on, to, I guess, to try to soften the anti-immigrant message that was then in the acceptance speech, they're the two Marine guards and they're opening the door. And it looks exactly like what happens in Moscow when yeah. Putin enters the room where you have two soldiers opening the door, standing at attention, and he walks through. That's probably where he got the idea. <laughs> you know, like he went to France, he saw the Bastille Day Parade. And next thing you know, he wants to haul the 1st Armored Division down Pennsylvania Avenue saluting at him. It's crazy. It's a kid with toy soldiers. Which they couldn't do, by the way. They couldn't do the military parade because they would have had to rebuild every street in Washington. Right, right. And it's a different culture. Now, Mark Meadows, the chief of staff for Trump, former congressman from North Carolina, was on Fox News, your favorite network this morning. And I heard his answer to that. And I think it was probably mostly true because they knew this one was coming, which is, no, the campaign wrote a check for several million dollars. But so no taxpayer money was used. But the fact is, there's a lot of intangibles um, that you can't account for. And campaign dollars are precious. So my guess is they spent a few mil, but not really what the real hard accounting cost was. But I think even the greater sin was, one, using the buildings in the backdrop. And two, the commandant of the Marine Corps is something to answer for, because our our soldiers are not partisan props like that. And uh, it was, again, like so many things of Trump, way above, you know, beyond the the, any sense of what was the bipartisan consensus on how to protect our public in, institutions during a campaign. Now, Kim, let's see, a tremendous question from Jonathan, because uh, this is r- a real thing here. Can you talk about what may happen 
if, say, Trump is winning on election night, but there is a delay in mail-in votes that swings the election to Biden. In other words, the slow count. You know, how is it covered? All the confusion for days. And also, if, is, if there's interference or there's trouble with some of the mail-in votes, you know, through the post office, which has challenges, is there a Supreme Court precedent for this? Uh, no. In fact, Bush v. Gore, uh, the Supreme Court specifically wrote, the majority wrote, the five-person majority, that the case could never be cited as precedent. Uh, I, look, if, if that scenario comes true, and it very well could, Trump's going to say the election is rigged. Uh, he's going to scream, don't count any of the mail ballots that arrive after election day because the post office was too slow. Uh, and at the best case uh, outcome there is that they all do get counted somehow or other, that our institutions work, that the Joint Chiefs, the Secret Service, say to the president, you know, you have to leave on January 20th. Uh, and, and we still have, even after he leaves, 30% of the country or so, 35% of the country or so, absolutely alienated, convinced that the election was stolen from them, so that the polarization we have in America becomes even worse. Yeah. And that's probably the best outcome. The worst outcome is that he finds a way to somehow or other stay, even if the ballots honestly counted would throw him out. Now, if it gets to the Supreme Court, my own belief is that the court would rule against him five to four. I think John Roberts would worry very much about the court getting into the position of aiding and abetting a president stealing an election. Uh, and at that point, who knows? He might say, I'm not, the court's made its decision. Uh, you know, they're rigged. John Roberts is a bad justice. He's voted wrong on a lot of things. Uh, and at that point, will the, will the powers that, that, that can actually achieve uh, uh, his removal from the White House should be the people who make this decision. But at that point, you wonder if the Joint Chiefs, Secret Service, uh, will say to him, listen, you have to go. Uh, on the other hand, there's one possibility that once he riles everybody up, he'll finally go, and he'll become the first president since John Adams uh, not to attend uh, his successor's inauguration, assuming yeah. that the president was alive. Adams was so mad that Jefferson won that he got in a carriage the day before the inauguration and drove out of Washington back toward Massachusetts, and that he'll then do something like buy One America News uh, or uh, borrow some money from somebody <laughs> to buy One America News and become a, a kind of, remain a kind of celebrity. And then I think Trump would probably run, uh, if assuming he was healthy, would probably run for president in 2024, trying to pull a Grover Cleveland. Yeah, it's all possible. Um, I'm hoping he follows the great American example of Sam Houston, who, when thrown out of Congress by the voters in East Tennessee, went to the courthouse steps, gathered a crowd, and said, well, I'm going to Texas, and you can go to hell. <laughs> and he left. Uh, I am most worried about the endangered institutions from the confusion in the gap between Election Day and the final count a week later, or most of the final count. It'll go on longer than that, when it'll be pretty clear. And that Trump will use the intervening days and the power of his office to sow confusion and distrust and claim fraud and do things that are very corrosive. But I think the numbers will catch up with him. I think a surprising number 
of Republican-appointed Supreme Court justices and even governors. And, and governors have a lot of power in states to make sure absentee ballots are protected. State police can take possession. Uh, I think there's some good faith there about ending the nightmare. I'm more worried about the rhetoric and the loss of public confidence and potentially even violence during that turbulent time. I'm hoping President Obama and President George W. Bush both take that moment together at the beginning to stand up and reassure the country that the count is legit, the system works, and to, you know, kind of put a cone of of uh, grown-up silence on some of the the wiggling on the hook we may get from the president. Now, the good news is the raw vote count, my guess, unless Biden collapses uh, with mistakes in the next, you know, 60 days, is going to be pretty good. The question is, what's the raw vote going to look like in the industrial Midwest where the race could be closing, particularly if Officer Biden doesn't get out there, um, and then some of the new opportunity states like Arizona and Florida. So anyway, it, it, I think it's a great concern to most of us who expect normalcy, and we now know the truth of Trump is that normalcy is the first casualty. Nancy Fox has a question. What is the Democratic Party doing, Bob, to protect the post office, and what more can be done to protect the safe and fair delivery and counting of ballots? Well, first of all, Mike, I'd like you to talk about this campaign against mail ballots and how some Republicans at the state level are reacting to it. Well, yeah, it's fascinating because the truth is the idea of permanent absentee ballots is often, particularly starting in California, as Pete Wilson, was driven by Republicans who wanted to make sure their suburbanites uh, voted. So there is absolutely no reason for the Republican Party to fear absentee ballots. Now, it's no longer a Republican advantage. It's just a lot of people vote that way. It, 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 it's not a corrupting influence. What Trump, who I think is confused about this issue, because it's sort of funny, the mid-level mechanics in the Republican Party, many of whom are kind of reluctantly but cowardly, in my view, silently serving Trump, they hate this rhetoric about you can't trust your absentee ballot because they think it'll cost Republicans ballot. The Senate Campaign Committee people are bananas about it. That said, some states, not many, do a universal ballot mailing. And, and, and there is some question about that. I am I, much more a apply, like I'm a permanent absentee ballot voter in California, which is how the bulk of it is done. None of the swing states have the mail everybody a ballot. So potentially, there's no history of it, but they're doing more of this now, where there's history of fraud. Nevada has a pretty loose plan, but Nevada is a democratic state, so it won't have a material outcome. And because of COVID, there's an incentive to loosen it up a little because you want people to vote. So this is basically a canard, and I am more worried systemically about the post office because we're now at a point where 77% of Americans are at least eligible, which means they won't all do it, to vote absentee. But we could have an election where nationally it's close to half, which would be new high level. And Trump's got a political hack running the post office. The problem with the post office is much bigger than Trump. It has systemically been winding down. And if, this, if you're a post office nerd, there is a tremendous podcast interview of Fred Smith, who's kind of the genius who founded FedEx. And what people don't know is FedEx and UPS do a lot of the mail carrying now for the post office. They're all intertwined. And it's a thing called Southeastern Asset Management, which is a well-known uh, investment firm. And they interviewed Fred Smith because they've been original investors. And he goes in, this is like nine months ago, way before any of the politics. And Fred's a Republican. But he goes through all these predictions about the post office is going to hit a wall. Uh, so you can, if you listen to that, it's quite an education in these problems. So 
What is the Democrat tri Party trying to do? They're trying to do what they always try to do, which is raid the Treasury and give them a ton of money. But I'm on board with it right now because I want to patch this thing together for the next six months. Then we're going to have to reinvent the post office, which is going to be a different and smaller organization to reflect the fact that the way we deliver parcels now has changed a lot. But in the short term, money's the fix. And since we're spending World War II money on everything else, why not at least try to protect our election integrity with the post office, which, relatively speaking, is not that much money? Yeah, I don't think this is a winner issue for Trump. Uh, there are a lot of seniors who get their medicine uh, through the mail. There are a lot of veterans who get their prescriptions through the mail. Social security checks uh, for a lot of people come through the mail. Uh, and in a demographic where he should be doing well, but he's actually in our data behind right now, uh, attacking the post office is not a good idea. What are the Democrats doing? As Mike said, they passed an emergency bill for, 20, I think it's $25 billion to, to, to shore up the post office. Mitch McConnell will not let that bill come to the floor of the Senate. The only way that anything like that is going to pass uh, is as part of the negotiation for a third recovery package, where the Democrats insist on some money, $10 billion, $15 billion, But that's about all you can do. Uh, there's not a lot else you can do. So a softball for Mike from Fausto Rodriguez, thank you. I love a good softball question. <laughs> Who is your favorite Democrat president and why? Okay, well, that's a great question. I'm tempted to say Colonel House, who was essentially the president during the early years of a president I don't like at all and holding some contempt, Woodrow Wilson, the worst. Uh, but I guess in modern era, I would say a tie between Harry Truman, a good machine politician who knew what to do and had no illusions about the Soviets, and, of course, Jack Kennedy, my people, who ran as a pretty conservative Democrat. He'd probably be primaried out of the Democratic Party today. But, you know, some people could say that would be true of Reagan as well. So I'll say a tie uh, between Jack Kennedy and Harry Truman with an honorable mention to the great public servant, uh, Colonel House, who was the key guy in the early days of the Wilson uh, administration with the diplomatic side of things. My favorite Republican president is Abraham Lincoln. And who's your least favorite, Trump or Hoover? Uh, no, Trump. Yeah, I kind of uh, like think Hoover. Trump, I think underrated. I, I think, look, Hoover, Hoover just didn't know what to do. He was trapped in the orthodoxy of his times. And the contrast with Franklin Roosevelt, who is also a favorite president of mine, is that he just was willing to buck the orthodoxy. As he said, I'm going to try something. If it doesn't work, I'm going to try something else. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to try something else. We're just going to keep hitting the ball and, or swinging the bat until we hit the ball. So here, a special quiz question, because you're a historical nut. Favorite 20th century Republican, doesn't, don't have to win, just candidate, vice presidential candidate. There's one clear one. This will come to you. Uh -uh. <laughs> uh, you want a hint? Well, I want to know who, who, you, who you would pick. Oh, I would say Frank you, Knox. You were going to pick Nixon, right? Landon Knox. Frank Knox rode and fought with yeah. the Rough Riders, was a crusading newspaper editor, and then FDR recruited him and Stimson in to run the Defense Department. Knox was Secretary of the Navy to make the argument that we had to build up to get ready for Japan. Those guys really helped FDR in, in many ways to run the first years of the Second World War and save the country, both Patriots, Simpson, and Knox. But Knox actually had run for vice president, having lost the primary to uh, Brother Landon of Kansas. So I'm a big Frank Knox guy. Uh, I'll say Dan Quayle. Okay. Your favorite? 
<laughs> All right, we're, we're put that one down. You said, you said favorite. <laughs> yeah, favorite Republican. Uh, Quail's underrated too. All right, we have time for one more question. Okay, this is up your alley, Bob, from Deborah Kaplan. Will Kamala Harris be able to, quote, beat, unquote, Pence in the debate? And what's your best advice to her? Well, first of all, of course, uh, we're supposed to lower expectations, not raise them. I'm not part of the campaign. I'm trying to analyze the campaign. I think she'll do very well in the debate against Pence, but I think she does have pretty high expectations. Uh, That's one of her two big jobs. Her other job is to get African-American turnout up in places like Detroit, in those (coughs) blue wall states where it fell off dramatically from 2012 to 2016. Uh, And right now she's the most popular in terms of her favorability, she's the most popular candidate of the four people on the two-party tickets. I was not for her. I was for the great Gina Raimondo, greatest Democratic governor in the country. And I still don't think she was that strong a choice. We will see in the debate. She could win. She could lose. She is uneven. My guess is she'll do okay. My advice to her, and this will get angry mail, so send it all to Bob Schrum at the USC Center for the Political Future, and he'll, he'll pass it on to me. If you have any phone calls, calls Trump. But (laughs) at times, Kamala has the unfortunate performance habit, I don't think she knows, so this is a coaching thing to fix, of sounding like a woman of means who is unhappy with a waiter. Please, their endive is not properly chopped. It's just a voice tone thing, and she needs to work on that, because Pence is good at folksy old grandpa, and Her job will be to persuade suburbanites there's nothing to worry about, that Biden is actually safer than arsonist fireman Trump. And when she's really good, she's really good. When she's bad and that tone comes up and everything, she won't be that good. So I I think her most important role is to be great in the debate. I think she's capable of it because when she's really good, she's really good. But I think coaching is in order, and she ought to take that debate, and probably is, more seriously than any other thing she's doing in the campaign. I thought a good sign, by the way, and one of the reasons I started thinking she was the choice was Biden preemptively surrounded her with the strong staff rather than inheriting her staff that was at least uneven during the campaign. So my guess is the prep is going to be expert and as an anti-Trump Republican, hopefully quite effective. But we will see. We're going to find out. Now, because we're a little early, we have time for one speed round here. And that will be from Brian. Do you see Mike Bloomberg with all his resources getting heavily involved to help Biden? And uh, this is a double. And Genesee Miller, are you hearing from Republican voters that Trump's scare tactics about the invasion of the suburbs is hitting home with voters? So, Bob, you take them, and then I will, and we'll wrap up. I think Bloomberg will get involved. Uh, I don't think he'll spend a billion dollars, but I think he'd easily spend a couple hundred million, not only helping Biden, but helping Democrats in Senate and congressional races. I do think that, and we don't know yet, but I do think that the Trump law and order rhetoric has the potential not just to help him out, but it has the potential to backfire. And that depends, as Mike has suggested, heavily on how Biden reacts to it. Yeah, and for Biden, react now. Don't react later because then nobody will believe you. Get in front of this and, you know, diffuse it. But I agree with Bob about that. On Bloomberg, he's announced $60 million to the Democratic congressional effort and tens of millions of dollars to a gun effort, including $6 million on the air in Florida, where the background check issue really works in the suburbs and that'll help. 
He has not given his people, as of at least last week, a budget, and nothing is public for the presidential campaign. Don't expect him to be the miracle saver, but he cares deeply about defeating Trump. Disclosure, he's no client of mine. I'm not working for him now. And so I'd be stunned if he doesn't take a strong role in in helping change presidents. So we're, we're waiting to see. Well, I think that wraps us up. I want to thank everybody. Remember, you can keep up on our poll. We got this big, interesting poll coming out. It's out now, but our post-Republican convention sampling will be out next Tuesday. You can follow us on our website at the USC Center for the Political Future, or you can follow our Twitter feed at USC POL Center. And all our stuff is there, and it's a great follow to keep up with what we're doing. Thank you for tuning in. And Mike. Yes, sir. I want to thank the audience, as you're about to, and I want to thank all the folks who've joined us in this partnership with the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival. Yeah, big salute to them, and uh, we really appreciate that, and we'll be doing more with them. And to Jamie Cabler and Deborah Chu, who we work with on this. Absolutely. So, for all those reasons, thank you, and uh, we'll be back with more programming from our fellows, our polls, everything in the near future. Take care. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture, Facebook, and YouTube. And visit our website for upcoming programs.